This morning's scripture is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you were made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is God's word. Morning. We, um, let me give you a little bit of outline of where we're headed for the rest of the summer and into the fall. You'll get more details on this, but I think it might be good. We're going to, it's been a long stretch for me, and we're going to, my family's going to take a few weeks off uh, in July and be doing some traveling. Uh, leaders in our body will be preaching, and we'll be here, and it'll be great. Um, when we get back, we're going to study the book of Habakkuk. It's one of the of the minor prophets, so if you want to jump ahead, feel free to read the uh, chapters of Habakkuk there toward the end of the Old Testament. And then what right now, and we'll, we'll work this out a little more, but we are, I'm planning to do a long study in the Gospel of Luke, uh, after that. And one of the things we are, uh, planning to do is challenge everyone here who is not involved in some type of small group. Uh, we're gonna, along with the Gospel, begin to offer some questions, and we're going to really make, facilitate a way for people to gather together, north, east, west, south. So be thinking about that. This will be at the, toward the end of August. Uh, be thinking about, okay, are we ready to, whether it's every week or every other week, we'll let individual groups, we have some groups going, but we would like to see more people. I feel like, uh, we're all going to be blessed if we have more people involved together. So I want you to be just thinking and praying about that. You don't have to go through Luke with us. It's not a requirement. But we want to make this uh, an offer and to offer some questions and some follow-up material. So just keep that all in mind as we roll through the rest of 2021. You'll be hearing a lot more about this. We are finishing up 1 Timothy today. If you've been the last eight weeks, we've been rolling through this book of 1 Timothy. And the way uh, the, the 1 Timothy is about the church, it's about how the church should operate, what the church should stand for, how the leaders of the church should be. It's, this is what we've been looking at. And at the end today, this is again a personal letter from the Apostle Paul to his young Son in the faith, Timothy. And we get some very personal words here. We get, we get to read this very personal letter. And I just, I want to make just a couple of observations. That's, that's all. It's, it's, uh, I'm not so much unpacking the meaning. I think if you read this, the meaning is relatively clear, but I think there are some real jewels, uh, that we can gather from these very personal words of encouragement from Paul to Timothy. So if you look with me, if you got your Bible, look at 1 Timothy 6, uh, 11. 
Remember last week we talked about, I was very, um, it was sort of my true confessions week last week. I talked about uh, my own uh, struggle with love of money, and that's really what the preceding passage is about, and the idolatry and those who love money and love gain. And he's, again, Paul is talking about the leadership of the church, those who are falling short of leading in a way that uh, God intends. And so he begins this last personal section. He says, but as for you, O man of God, Flee these things, these things referring to that desire for wealth and uh, contention over minor issues, not focusing on the gospel. But I want, you, I want you to catch something. He refers to Timothy by name throughout this letter. And even at the very end, in verse 20, we're going to look at, oh, Timothy, guard this deposit. But he uses a title, an, an honorific title, oh, man of God. Now this, these words, very, very, I mean the phrasing, anthropos theo, man, it's mankind, this doesn't have to be gender man, but you person of God, it's a, it's a title used in the scripture only about seven times. Here's who it's used of, uh, the, although it was written in Hebrew, not Greek, we know from the way the Bible was translated in the Septuagint that this title was given to Moses, Samuel, David, Elijah, Elisha, and then a couple of David's mighty men. That's a pretty heavy hitters in the Bible. They're called, oh, you man of God. And then once other time in the New Testament, the title is used for people who have matured in their faith. Now, we know specifically from 2 Timothy, but in parts of 1 Timothy, that Timothy struggled with being fearful, timid. Um, he probably had some sort of nerves over all that he was required to do. Remember, we know he was a relatively young person. We studied earlier the passage of, don't let anyone look down on you for your youthfulness. Do you hear what the most influential Christian, the most well-instructed, this Pharisee, this man who is one of, with Peter and James, the leaders of this movement, that is sweeping right now over that part of the world. And he says to this young man, but you, O man of God, there is such power when we take that I see in you, maybe not everything you are right now, but I see in you what God's ordained and intended for you to be. Because I don't believe Timothy was necessarily, at this point in his life, Moses, Elijah, Samuel. I mean, I, I know he had a heart for God. But I think it's very significant that this older man looks at this younger man and says, but as for you, oh man of God, for parents, y'all, there's power in our words and power in what we see in our kids. Those of you who have grandkids, those of you who are uh, mentoring or having younger people, because, you know, my tendency, especially when my kids were younger, was to, you know, what, what glared out to me was all the ways they fell short and all the things that, you know, I wanted them to be that I, I could see they weren't. And we certainly need to point out, I'm not saying we ignore those things, but it's so important that we say, I see in you the person God wants you to be. And it's there. That seed is there. 
As for you, man of God, he gives these verbs. He says, flee these things and pursue these things. Let's look again at 6.11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, the ones he's just described in verses 3 through 10, and pursue these things, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. These are the characteristics of pursuing godly things. The word there for pursue is, uh, is an interesting word. Dioke is almost always translated persecute. If you look in the Bible and you looked at that word, it's used relatively often, several dozen times, mostly translated persecute. The very first sentence that God says to the Apostle Paul when he knocks him off his horse is this. Why, Paul, are you diokeying me? Why are you persecuting me? That's what the Scripture records in Acts. There is an active sense. Paul was actively persecuting. He was not... You you can't really persecute passively, right? It's sort of that's an oxymoron. If you're going to go after someone, you've got to spend your time really going after them. There is an act active. And he says, look, Timothy, a man of God, you're going to flee the things that would snare you away from the gospel. And you are going to pursue with diligence the things of faith. Let me just challenge any of us here that there is, and it is, I think, endemic in our culture, and maybe it's just endemic in the human heart, I don't know, but that we can somehow be Christians and take a passive attitude toward becoming these godly characteristics. Somehow do you think if you just kind of get up in the morning, and we if I think, do I just think going through my day, righteousness and gentleness is somehow going to come upon me like I'll wake up 10 years from now and these things that he says about what we should be pursuing, that you will be a person of faith, a person of righteousness, a person of steadfastness, a person of the kind of godly love. It doesn't just happen. If you do not pursue it, and you say, how do I pursue it? It ain't rocket science, right? You pursue it through as you would any relationship Interaction, communication, studying His Word, fellowship with the saints, the spiritual disciplines. If you are not practicing these things, then this Word, just hear it for you, O person of faith, O great man and woman of God. Hear this. Pursue it. Take the time. It is hard. I get it. It's inconvenient to get together with people. It's an interruption. I get it. We have other things to do. I get it. But we want to be, I know we want to be filled with the Spirit of God because then it gives us purpose. If you think, well, I I, I can't do these things. I'm too anxious. I'm too depressed. I'm too fearful. I'm too... Well, do you see, maybe... Those things wouldn't be overcoming if we were involved in the things that would make us pursuing God. Because here's the thing. He is pursuing you. He pursued you before you pursued Him. If you don't think God's pursuing you, 
I challenge you to read the scripture and don't think God is after you. He's after every one of us. I don't care how mature or how far away or if you're ignoring God. If you're here, you're not ignoring God enough to not be pursuing. Believe me, he's pursuing people. That's what he does. He runs after you. We sang that this morning. His love is running after you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He came when you didn't know him, didn't care about him, didn't know his name. He came for you. He loves you, O person of God, so much. Flee the things that ensnare you. Pursue with diligence these things. And then these other verbs he uses. Fight the good fight of the faith. Verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Paul could be referring to a lot of things in this. The fight. How do we fight? Greece was the you know home of the Olympics and Greco-Roman culture, very big into athletics. And in other places, uh, in Second Timothy, he says he's fought the good fight. Paul himself says he's fought the good fight and won the race. So there's definitely maybe an athletic component, whether it's sort of wrestling, the fighting part of wrestling, or or just a, a running race. But earlier in First Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1.18, he uses the word fight again, and it's clear in that context that he's talking about a battle, a like fist fight, a war. And the word agona that's used for fight is where we get our word agony. It's the derivation of agony. So, so here's my, just my takeaway, my observation of this, is that I don't know what you think the Christian life is like, but we've been sold a bill of goods so much that the Christian life is to, you know, make you happy and make your problems go away. It does make you happy and it does help your problems, but it's a fight. And there is agony in pursuing God. There is a death because death to self, it feels agonizing. And so if you're not interested in that pursuit, I don't mean this to be glib, but you sort of have picked the wrong religion. There are other religions you could pursue that won't require that of you. But just be aware when we, the war is upon you. We've used that quote from Lord of the Rings or whatever. Whether you want it or not, there's a battle. There's a battle on all sorts of levels. See, Spurgeon, the uh, great 19th century uh, preacher and theologian, says this about these, about uh, this and the next phrase, lay hold on eternal life. Because again, this is all very active work. Laying a hold of. just means grabbing. We tell our kids not to be grabby. The Bible is all about grabbing. Grab eternal life. Just be grabby. Here's what Spurgeon says. Lay hold on eternal life. Look at what precedes this. Fight the good fight of the faith. Those who lay hold on eternal life are going to have to grab and fight for it. The way of spiritual life is not easy. We shall have to contest every step of the way along which it leads us. Perhaps a more accurate rendering of this passage is contest the good contest of the faith. It is a contest against the world, against the flesh, and against the devil that will all try to drag you down. If we live unto God, we shall need to see and participate in this daily warfare. But we tread down the powers of death and hell. That's a good word. But lest you think this is such a negative sermon, I don't want to go to that church. That's so negative. Listen to what he, what he follows it up with, which I think is, is really just fantastic. Keep reading along with me. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. 
about which you have made a good confession. The word there for good is the word kalos, and it is as good a word as agony is when you think of agony, whatever the worst word. Kalos is translated biblically like this, beautiful, excellent, choice, the best, surpassing, precious, suitable, commendable, admirable. He says this is a beautiful fight. Why? Because the fight's been won if you grab onto the victor. It's a hard fight, but boy, wouldn't you like to participate in a game or a war where you know you'd won and there's a huge prize at the end and you know it's a slam dunk? Not to mix my basketball metaphors, but wouldn't you like that? That's what he calls us to, a beautiful fight, a kalos agona. That's what he said it's supposed to be. This is our reality. A fight, but a beautiful fight that's already been won. So we have these verbs, grab, take hold of eternal life, flee, pursue, fight. And then the last one, I'm going to skip down if you've got to verse 20. O Timothy, very last couple sentences in this book. O Timothy, guard the the deposit entrusted to you. Guard. Guard the deposit. A couple things I want to say. One is he calls, says guard the deposit. Earlier he talks about the, the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life. It's not always rendered that way in Scripture. But that the is going back to the whole theme of Timothy, which is the gospel is at stake if the church isn't the place where our primary Focus our primary message is is Jesus Christ. Remember, if we go back, the sort of theme of First Timothy can be summated in it's not a good word, summarized, not summated, summarized in First Timothy three fifteen says, "I want you to know." I'm writing this. I want you to know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed is this mystery. And he goes through Jesus. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. He talks about this is our calling. Guard the deposit. Guard it. What you've been given is the truth of the gospel. It's a very loaded thing when someone says to you, would you keep this for me? I, I need some place to store this. Ever had anybody ask you to do that? It's one thing if it's like a rake or a, uh, you know, like blow, blower. We've got, somebody has asked us to store what they consider very precious things, and we've had them. Well, you know, we just moved, and we just closed on a house. We're going to have to move again. We've got this person's boxes that had to go to the movers and stay with them, and this person would like to get their stuff, and they can't get it. We've been asked to guard it, and it's not available. It's a, it's a pain to guard someone else's stuff if it's not. And we don't value it like they do, so it's just, it's just been like, ah, uh, you know, would you watch it for me? Well, yeah. I think it's just your crud that you... It's not really crud. It's, they're valuable to them. But have you ever had anybody ask? Somebody asked me to keep their um, like their last will and testament because they didn't have somewhere like I have a lockbox to keep you know, like at home, a firebox or whatever. It's pretty valuable stuff. Like that's important. Like, would you Would you entrust this to me? 
some of you I, I told not too long ago, a year and a half ago or so, when my father died, we uh, he left instructions. This is, you know, about two years ago. He, he left us instructions to go to a safe deposit box. Remember this story? And, and he said, here's the key, and um, uh, here's what's in there. And we went to the bank. My oldest brother went to the bank, and they said, I'm sorry, someone closed that lockbox out. We, we don't have it. But so I got a key and paperwork and a list of what's supposed to be in there. The bank said, I don't know what to tell you. We're like, you didn't guard that very well. Like, you know, well, we went through wrangling and it's, it's a long story, but we went through a bunch of stuff till finally we worked our way high enough up the bank food chain until somebody said, okay, we'll open it. You know, but of course it wasn't ours anymore because they had closed it and all of our stuff was in there. Did they guard it? <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Here's my concern. You've been given the gospel to guard, to not keep and keep hidden, but to pass along. And I have two fears in this. One is that we pass along a different gospel to our children and to others. The gospel may look different in the sense of its context. It may be purer. The gold may be purer that you've been given. But if you're given gold from the Lord and the purity of the gospel that Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and you pass along good works and be a good person and citizen to your children, you have robbed them of gold. And I'm a, I fear that sometimes we pass along should they be a good person, a good citizen? Absolutely. But that's not the gold the church has been given. And you as parents and grandparents and as mentors, we are giving the way more valuable. There's only one message that saves. The second fear I have in terms of that is that somehow in our um, desire to faithfully keep it, we, like that lockbox, tuck it away where if our kids ever drag it out of us or people we know, we'll tell them stories of our faith. But that, you know, it's very different to put something in a lockbox. If, if my mother's jewelry, and it wasn't super valuable to anybody else, but it was to us, how much better if it had been kept on display like somewhere where we could have viewed it and kept safe from people tampering with it. And I think our faith is to be put that way, where our faith is on display. How do we put our faith on display? Well, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The faith resides in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so it is incumbent upon all of us to speak our faith, to live our faith, to have evidence of our faith. Luther said this. Martin Luther said, I must be sure to always and everywhere hearken back to the gospel which teaches me not what I should do. That's the law. But what Jesus has done for me, for that's the gospel. Do people in your life, whether it's your kids, grandkids, or do they know what Jesus has done for you? Do you speak of, this is what God is doing for me now, has done for me? Then you're passing treasure. 
if they have to if they have to guess I think it's sad I, I don't want to have any of us feel like the, what's been entrusted to us if you are a Christian let me just finish with this. The gospel, I don't think, my observation, I'm not the first person to say this, but I, I, I do not think the gospel gets lost usually by being stolen from one person who comes to Christ and is transformed and then someone else looks at that and says, I reject that. That does happen. But here's what I think is far more typical that happens is that one person or generation, let's just call it a generation, it accepts it and it transforms them. And then it becomes assumed by the next generation. And then it becomes confused by the next generation. And then it becomes lost by the next generation. And a generation doesn't necessarily mean child to child to child. But what becomes accepted by one becomes assumed, then confused, then lost. And I... I don't want to see any church, our church or any church, end up with this precious deposit and what we pass along isn't gold, but fool's gold, something that isn't worth what he's called us to. That's First Timothy. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, Your word says that you're going to come again and you're going to require faith on the earth and that you're going to see what happens when we as individuals were given a treasure. Did we bury it? Did we confuse it? Did we integrate it with something else and make it an alloy? Or did we pass along the purity of our faith in a way that is both offensive and attractive. Because it's a beautiful agony, Lord, that we go through in our fight at so hard at times, but it should be producing in us something so lovely and transforming us that we become the evidence of the truth of the message because the gospel is transforming us as individuals, as families, and as a church. Lord, help us to walk in your ways that we may know you even as you know us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?